Welcome to the Eat Right Nutrition Podcast, where we partner with experts in the health, wellness, and nutrition field to deliver you an excellent variety of content based on real science, real facts, and real food. I'm your host, Daron. And I'm Nicole. And today, we're joined by Dr. Bill Campbell, and we're going to talk about calorie deficits, protein, macronutrient distributions, and meal frequency. Ladies and gentlemen, today we're joined by Dr. Bill Campbell. Dr. Bill Campbell is a professor of exercise science and the director of the Performance and Physique Enhancement Lab at the University of South Florida. He's published over 150 articles. His research is focused on improving exercise performance and enhancing physique through resistance training, nutrition, and dietary supplements. Dr. Bill Campbell. Hello. Hi. Thank you for being here. Yeah. Sure. Is, Thank you for is, the invitation. This is, we love your research. Yes, we're very ah. excited. It's, 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 it's good stuff. It's good quality research. I'm like, this guy, we got to get him on. <laughs> I'm very blessed. I get to research what I like to research at a place where I like to work. I see you, you teach a lot of classes too. Yeah. Um, in the past, I used to teach a lot more. I teach four different classes right now. Yeah, so I want to get into it. I want to start by what I think is order of importance, calorie deficits and protein intake, and then macronutrient distributions and meal frequency. Some of the research that you have on calorie deficits and diet breaks in terms of who's going to lose weight quicker, kind of like playing the longer game versus not, or increasing calories when your body goes through those metabolic adaptations. So can you talk to us a little bit about some of the research on calorie deficits in general and diet breaks? Sure, yeah. And let me provide a little context as to who, are, who my primary audience is with my research. So we, at times we've studied bodybuilders competing for shows. We've done a few case studies in that area. But it's not my primary audience. So I like to, my research really speaks to people who like to optimize their physiques within a maintainable lifestyle. So I always like to start with that. So I'm not studying obese people and I'm not studying elite bodybuilders. I'm kind of in the world of people who kind of want to look like a bodybuilder, but maybe not step on stage. So that's, that's the framework for, for where my research, the type of subjects that we study. And when you look, when you discuss like caloric deficits, we'll start there. Now, I need to make this clear. This doesn't apply to an obese person, and it likely doesn't apply to a bodybuilder trying to get stage lean. It's the, 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 what we know is if you try to lose weight too quickly, if your caloric deficit is too severe, you kind of invite some problems. And when you understand these problems, that's where diet breaks and diet refeeds can, can potentially help. So let me just talk about some of these problems and not even getting into diet breaks right away, but just taking a more grad, gradual approach is more beneficial. So if you, there's even just not even severe dieting, people on a 10 day diet that reduce their calories by 20%, what happens is muscle protein synthesis goes down by nearly 20%. Muscle protein breakdown in that situation is significantly increased. We know that metabolic rate is suppressed with severe caloric restrictions and the longer a caloric restriction is, is attained. Uh, recently, I read some research on there's anabolic signaling disruption in terms of the growth hormone IGF-1 axis. A caloric deficit puts issues into that, meaning that growth hormone is elevated, but IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor 1, which is highly anabolic, that is suppressed in a caloric deficit. And then of course, just people like getting grouchy and irritable, all, all of the lifestyle. <laughs> the hangry. <laughs> yes, yeah. So yeah, you have all of these neg negative aspects that are more manifested when the caloric deficit is severe. And also what a lot of people can't appreciate is 
when you do go on a, a severe caloric deficit and then when it ends, you've really just set yourself up for future failure. You're much more likely to gain weight back. And the weight that you gain back is much more likely to be gained back as fat. And there's this theory that's been put out there um, that if you lose weight rapidly, and there's a couple studies that would suggest this, the Minnesota starvation study, there was a study conducted in military uh, trainees going through basic training. Um, I think there was a twin study that I'm aware of, but a rapid loss of fat and then at the end of their diet, when they start to gain weight back, they, they actually got back to their pre-diet body weight level, but they kept gaining fat past that point until they were able to gain their muscle mass back. So it wasn't until their muscle mass was regained that the body stopped putting on additional fat. And they also associated this with hyperphagia, which is this extreme desire to eat. So in these few studies that reported this, it seems like your loss of muscle mass is very important to your post-diet success. So not only should you take your time, you want to do everything you can to protect your muscle mass when dieting. So those are my general philosophies. I have like what I call the three principles of fat loss. Lose weight slowly, don't reduce protein when dieting, and resistance train. All three of those things together help protect muscle mass and they help protect my metabolic rate. So now back to your question, now that we have a little context uh, about caloric deficits, well, what is an ideal caloric deficit? I can tell you what my lab has done on several occasions and what we've noticed. We will typically utilize a 25% caloric reduction from maintenance levels. We typically spend about two weeks determining our subject's maintenance levels. So let me just jump in. Let me ask you this. How, what, what are you using to determine the maintenance in that two-week period? Yes. So in research, there's two general ways. You can estimate it or you can measure it. So what we do is we work with our subjects and we give them a nutrition coach. So every one of our subjects is assigned their personal nutrition coach. So if our subjects don't know how to track their MOCA, so we're a macro tracking lab. If our, that's how we, we're a flexible dieting lab, that's the approach we take. So we, we provide an education to our subjects. Hey, here's how you track your macros. And years ago, we needed to have a pretty large educational intervention with our subjects. Today, it's ama I'm amazed. Most students know how to track their macros and already do this. A significant majority compared to just a few years ago. So we have them come in and we, we weigh them. And then depending on the study, we give them a scale to take home. And we say, hey, weigh yourself every day. And even if we don't give them a scale, we have them come back two weeks later. And we say, hey, just track everything you're doing. Don't change anything. Please don't change what you're doing. Just do what you normally do, but record it. And we monitor their weight. So and in a perfect world, they don't gain weight or lose weight. And we also measure body water so we can adjust for, for, for changes in total body water, especially if there's like if, if they're in the menstrual cycle, it's a, if it's a female subject. So we, we basically invest heavily in an educational process and a two-week period where they're tracking everything. And that's where we establish their maintenance calories. And then from that, we subtract. Now, let me also just say the other common approach that I don't, I don't like as much. A lot of researchers will, will estimate a subject's resting metabolic rate, or they'll measure it. Then they'll add on to that an activity factor. So if they're very sedentary, they'll multiply their metabolic rate by 1.2. If they're active, 1.5. Like a Mifflin equation or like something a like that. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. And that, there's nothing wrong with that. that. That's better than just taking a stab in the dark. But the one thing I don't like about it is it's not as specific to the individual that actually getting them to track their food. So I like what we do for two reasons. One, we're educating our subjects on how to track food, what food is. They can't be lazy in that process. The other thing is we're not just giving a blanket statement. If we measure somebody's metabolic rate, uh, one, there could be some error associated with that. The other thing is what if they estimate their activity incorrectly or we estimate it wrong? So we're multiplying it by an activity factor that might not be ideal. 
Now, that's not to say our system doesn't have its flaws. What if they don't track everything? What if they underreport or overreport? So all of these things have, have issues. But I prefer to base it on food intake, not on non-food intake measures like metabolism and perceived activity levels. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, there's, it's never going to be perfect, like you mentioned. And you know, if somebody's stressed out one week, that affects their resting metabolic rate. And there's multiple factors, but we're just talking activity level and uh, dietary intake and their weight. Yes. Yep. And what we do also during that maintenance period is we, we tell them, don't change your activity during this two-week period because that will factor in to what you normally do. So we don't want to change anything. We just want to take we just want to record what you're doing. And I will say that th- that model has worked out well. But again, it's, it's a lot of work to educate them if they don't know how to do it, to provide them with a personalized nutrition coach. Uh, we give them spreadsheets. We give them, um, you know, quiz questions on their diets. Like, do you know what a carb is? Do you know what a fat is? At least our, our coaches do that. They're working with them very closely during that time. And two weeks is better than one, obviously. I mean, one, um, one week would be better than no weeks, but two weeks is even better than one. So, so then you give them a 25% um, decrease. Deficit. Deficit, right? Yes. That's what we, that's what we typically do. And what, what we, what I would say that what I refer to our system as, or, or what we do in our research, it's a protein anchored, flexible dieting system. What do I mean by that? So, Flex, uh, protein anchored means we're going to reduce your calories by 25%, but we do require that you get at least 1.6, sometimes 1.8 of your body weight in grams of protein or uh, grams of protein per kilogram of, of body weight. So 1.6 or 1.8 is what we've typically done. So that's, let's just say we went from 2000 calories, we reduce it by 25%. So now they're at 1500 calories. We're going to say that approximately, uh, depending on their body weight, you know, five, 600 calories have to come from protein. For the rest of your calories, it really doesn't matter to us where you get them. You choose the foods that you like. If you like higher fat foods, get them from fat. If you like higher carb foods, get them from carbs. Now, we'll, we'll give them a plan to say, a flexible dieting plan, approximately maybe 60, 40 carbs to fat, but we're very clear. The only rule is you have to hit your protein because we're trying to maintain muscle mass. We're trying to keep metabolic rate elevated, but ultimately, it's their preferences with that. Um, and it actually turns out, you also asked about macronutrient distribution. With a 25% caloric restriction, in our subjects, and our subjects are never overweight or obese. They're relatively lean subjects to start these studies. It almost always comes out to about one-third carbohydrates, one-third fat, one-third protein in their diet phase at a 25% caloric reduction. So you're saying just naturally that just is the way it works out for people and that's what they tend to Yes. Use. Yep. On average, it's a third, a third, a third. Now, I do want to say this. We are in the middle of a rapid fat loss study, which we can, where a lot of this stuff is kind of turned on its head. I don't advocate rapid fat loss, but, but, I, but I'm a scientist, so I want to study what happens. So in that study, it's uh, nearly a 40% caloric restriction for only two weeks, and we're making them eat a gram of protein per pound of body weight or 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight. So we're kind of going outside our normal comfort zone of of 25%, and we're seeing how aggressive we can be while still trying to maintain muscle mass and metabolic rate. So with the calorie deficits back into the kind of the diet break piece or the doing it slowly, like what do you see as the difference in the research versus doing a diet break and potentially not doing a diet break and how that helps or factors into that. So let me, let me define diet break as, as we're defining it. So it's kind of fits under this general term called nonlinear dieting. What nonlinear dieting is not is somebody who goes on a diet and they're going to be on that diet for six months straight or three months straight. They never have a day where they're not dieting. Nonlinear dieting We'll have some times where we say, hey, take a break from dieting, chill out, increase your food, and we want you to increase your food for a week. 
If it's a week or two weeks, the term that's commonly applied is called diet break. If it's only like a day or two of increasing your calories, we, that's typically referred to as a diet refeed. So my lab has published a study this past year on a diet refeed where we increase calories from, from baseline on the weekends. And we just finished a study where we did a, a diet break in resistance training females where we had them take one week break. So let me talk about what the research has shown. The, the research is always done in obese individuals. So this is what makes my lab unique. We are looking at different types of diets and strategies in people who are not overweight. There are people who are already relatively lean who want to get leaner. So that's, that's, that's something that we focus on. They want to reach what would be optimal for them. Yes. Yep. And with the caveat, within a maintainable lifestyle. So people dieting for a bodybuilding show, there's nothing maintainable about that. That's right. Despite what we see on Instagram, it's not <laughs> uh, I, I've been oh, there. Yeah. I've, I've been there. I've competed three times, twice in the NPC, once in the INBF. And, and it's, you know, all I want to do is eat when I'm done. After I've hit 4%, stepped on stage, depleted, you know, dehydrated everything. And I'm like, it's, uh, it's, I, I would tend to go in the complete opposite direction after a show. It's like, I just want to eat everything that was on my list leading up to that show. Yes. Yep. And kind of, I mean, my dream is to say, let's say in your case, you're 4% on stage, but let's say you were happy at 8% with, with your physique. What does it take to keep you there? Can, right. can we do that for you that you can live your life? And like, in my case, I have a family. Can I, can I go out to ice cream with my family? Can I have whatever my wife cooks? Like where, what is that? What's that sweet spot where mm. You're working, but it's maintainable. So that's that's the pursuit for me. I'd I'd, lo I'd love the pursuit. Yeah. That's that's so incredible because that's our my entire caseload of clients. I primarily work with female fat loss clients, which is why I'm so interested in your research. And this is what we talk about so much: is for the client's sake, what works best for them, and then how can they stay in that comfortable? I say the comfortable lean lifestyle. So I think that's so incredible. Yeah. And, and the reality is too, and I've, I've lived this a lot just in the last two years. If you change your perspective, what used to be kind of like, oh, I could never do that. If you can get disciplined in your daily actions, what used to be like, I could never do that just becomes part of your normal mm -hmm. lifestyle. And again, we want to guard against obsessive, just again, not enjoying your night, being socially distant from people. I mean, not, not in a non-COVID world. <laughs> um, and then the other thing is, since you work with a lot of females, and this is unfortunate, but the, the media messages, the Instagram, yes. it, it's a lot of what I try to say is it's not real. These people are getting all of their pictures taken at one short time, and then they yes. release them over the next year to make you think that that was yesterday. Yes. It's, um, it's yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah. just you, not a reality. You think so as, a, as a viewer, as a com consumer of content, you think... The, how do they stay in shape all year round? And the reality is they've just got pictures just ready to load. Yep. Now, to be fair, there are outliers. I know some females and males mm -hmm. that are naturally lean. Now, they're always relatively young too, but they're outliers. They're one in a thousand. And then, you know, the other thing is there's drug use. I don't, I, you know, I assume there's Photoshop and, you know, all of that stuff. So I, I, the more the message is, and I have daughters, so I'm very sensitive to, to the messages. My daughters are nine and 13. It's like, you know, just, it's not real. This is, or it's not maintainable. It's, maintainable. So you, yeah. So you, as a coach, if you're working with a lot of females in this space, mm -hmm. that's, that's, it's just as much macros as it is psychology to, to yes. say, Hey, this is, this is what it's, this is reality versus non-reality. Yeah. The psychology of food is, is a huge piece um, that's why I like the, uh, all of your research on refeeds and diet breaks. I talk about it all the time, not just from the physiological parts that our body goes through, but from the emotional and mental state to truly take a break. And like you said, go have ice cream with your kids and relax. Then you're more excited to get back into that diet mindset when you start the next week, if you've actually had a bit of a break and kind of let go a little bit. Yes. Yeah. And I'm going to, I'll comment on the whole ice cream thing there too. <laughs> now I'm, I'm not a psychologist. I don't study psychology. We do some questionnaires in my research, but it's, it's not my specialty, but going back to the, to the research, when it's worked 
in a few studies in obese people, it's worked when it is a prescribed diet break. Mm -hmm. So they know ahead of time, I'm going to get a diet break at this week. So, and here's, here's where I think is the difference. What I think is some people will quote unquote cheat on their diet. They'll fail and they'll say, oh, well, I'll just call it a diet break. And for whatever reason, it doesn't work, at least in the literature, it doesn't work like that. There's something negative. There's a feeling of guilt and failure. Mm -hmm. But when it's prescribed and they know it and they could actually plan the ice cream with their children when in a diet, it's almost like that you embrace it. Hey, I can not only do this, I should because this might help keep my metabolic rate high. This might help maintain muscle mass in this process. Now, it, I mean, to be fair, it's, it's kind of sad. You have to plan ice cream with your kids, but the research does suggest that it needs to be prescribed. And then again, you're coming at it from a positive point of view or a positive psychological viewpoint of I'm just following the plan. The other thing is in the, the few studies where they've, shown, that, where they've investigated actual diet breaks, which is at least one week are up to two weeks, in some cases, even six weeks of a diet break. It's always, it always seems to work when the weight loss has been somewhat severe um, or there's large caloric deficits. Um, so a casual dieter, there's probably no need for this. Mm-hmm. The purpose of a diet break is to prevent the metabolic adaptation or some of these negative consequences that we mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. So I I mentioned this because we just finished a study in resistance trained females where we did a diet break. So they dieted for two weeks. They took one week off. They dieted for two weeks then they took a second week off. So a second diet break. Then they dieted for two more weeks. So they dieted six weeks, but two of the weeks were diet breaks. And we compared them to another group who only dieted for six weeks. And we found no advantage in body composition or metabolic rate. And there's a couple reasons for that. One, it could be that diet breaks just are not effective in resistance trained females. But I think that the more likely answer is they didn't get, they weren't lean enough to invite these negative consequences. In fact, metabolic rate didn't go down at all in either group. So we didn't have any metabolic damage to recover from. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing with muscle mass. There wasn't much muscle mass lost over these six weeks. So it could be that a diet break is more effective if the dieting itself is more severe. But the other part of it is, and this, this is, I think is really cool. There was no weight gain. There was no harm in taking these one week breaks. So if they want to go on vacation, if they want to spend a week, they have family coming in, take a break. Now you can't overeat during that week. You're going back to maintenance levels and we kept protein high. But if you do that, you're not any worse off than if you hadn't done that. And I think a lot of people have the fear, well, if yes. I take a break, I'll lose all my progress. Not according to our research. Yeah, that's you know, definitely true. That's a good point because one of the th- biggest things that I get from clients is, I'm going on vacation. What do I do? Or I have a birthday party or what do I do? And I'm just like, like do whatever you want. Uh, realistically, like just eat healthy foods, choose good quality foods. But if you decide to have dessert now obviously i'm not i don't expect people to completely track when they're on vacation but it's okay and i think the big picture and the big message is it's not even going to be a thing right you're it's not going to affect you where you're going to throw away all your progress you're going to go away you're going to enjoy the week then you're going to come back and you're going to get right, right back on track yeah and it's there's i don't think there's anything more miserable than trying to diet on vacation yeah like, exactly oh. Talk about hell on earth. Yeah, uh, yeah you want to have fun. It, I just think that, yeah, hope, hopefully our data, and we have not published this yet. We did, we, we have it, um, it was presented, it's submitted as an abstract to a comp, to the International Society of Sports Nutrition's conference um, a few weeks ago. So I'm able to talk about those results. But the fact that there was no harm done, like no weight gain from going back, I, I think is a pretty powerful approach. Now, I'll also mention what we found in our diet refeed study. So research shows, and I'm sure people would say, well, I don't need research to tell me that, but most people eat more food on the weekends. They Mm -hmm. they naturally have, and I can tell you right now, I definitely do. I'm much more hungry on the weekends because I'm not working as much. So we designed a study in resistance trained males and females 
under this philosophy, let's, let's design diets that will help you optimize your physique within a maintainable lifestyle. So if your normal lifestyle is eating more on the weekends, let's give you a break from your diet on the weekends. So we had two groups. One of the groups dieted for seven weeks, never took a break. And this was a 25% caloric deficit. The other group dieted for seven weeks as well, but every weekend they increased their calories back to maintenance levels. And this was in the form of carbohydrates. So they really increased their carbohydrates on the weekends back to maintenance levels. But what that meant was Monday through Friday, they had to reduce their calories by 35% so that at the end of the week, it was the same deficit. Mm -hmm. And what we found at the end of the seven weeks that they were, they, they lost significantly less dry fat-free mass. That just means the muscle mass component when we accounted for body water. And they tended to have their metabolic rates not get suppressed as much. And their, uh, just their normal muscle mass, even when we didn't account for water, was also maintained, tended to be maintained better. But there was a significant difference in the amount of dry fat-free mass that they were able to maintain with this approach. Uh, the amount of fat loss was the same. So there was no advantage from a fat loss perspective. But once again, clearly no harm done from just enjoying your weekends and not only no harm done, a, a better dry fat-free mass outcome at the end of the seven weeks. I would say, you know, in the, sh in the short term, but what about in the long term where if you're in a caloric deficit for, let's say, six months or longer, eventually the metabolic adaptation I would assume would kick in and you would have, a, you, you wouldn't be able to lose weight at that point. Yeah, I agree. If you're dieting for six straight months, something's wrong. Um, for again, for my population, I know if somebody who's 450 pounds, that may be, that may be preferred if they have, you know, looming health issues. So again, mm -hmm. making sure to define my audience, six months of dieting, which unfortunately people do, it's, it's, um, yeah, your metabolic rate would be, I believe, highly suppressed. You're, you're definitely not gaining muscle mass over six months of dieting. And the, the likelihood of you being able to maintain that weight loss when you finally stop your diet is, is minimal. It's, uh, so yeah, it's, I'm hoping that this diet break, oh, one other thing we found in this, in, in our resistance trained female diet break study, the one where they took one week off, we did a psychological measure called the three-factor eating inventory, or it's also just called eating inventory. One of the three measures was the propensity to overeat. Um, it's called disinhibition. And I disinhibition, I always forget what that means. But basically, what's your likelihood of just gorging on food? It actually went, there was a significant difference. The trends were different. Now, they were still within normal, normal values. But the group who took the diet breaks, they t their, their propensity to overeat and indulge, like they were disinhibited from just eating food, it actually went down. Whereas the group who dieted six weeks, six weeks straight with no diet breaks, their numbers tended to increase. So they were, um, they were more likely to have feelings of, I just want to overeat. Yeah, I feel like that's the, the if you make foods good versus bad or you like Darone, you were saying you take them, you, you, they're the no, no foods that you can't, or the foods you can't have, you put them on the list, you put them to the, sh you know, off to the side in the shelf, which a, a lot of women do. And then you quote unquote, come off of your diet, whenever that is six months, six days, six hours, they tend to go to that list of foods that are kind of the no, no foods. And that's what they tend to, whether they overeat or just eat more than they normally would have anyway. That's what I tend to find with my clients, with my female clients. You know what I'm saying? If we keep everything as it's on the table, but you're using it correctly or you're utilizing your nutrients correctly, which is why I like the macronutrient distribution um, topic as well, they're not as apt to find those foods more desirable in larger amounts. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. The, the good food, bad food is it's... Yeah, like it's almost like you win the battle. Today I won the battle. Yeah. I didn't eat these bad foods, but you're you're likely going to lose the war. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I mean, if every day you're going through every day, I just have to get through today without eating quote unquote bad foods. Eventually, you're going to give in, and it's going to go completely the the other direction. 
Which brings us to protein intake, which I'm dying to talk about, considering I find protein to be the most satiable. Can we talk a little bit about protein intake and just protein requirements in general? Yeah. So I've obviously, you meant, I mentioned I'm a, our philosophy, mm-hmm. the type of diets that we recommend for in our studies is a protein anchored flexible dieting study. The reason that we, we do that is when dieting, and this, this has been, the, the data is overwhelming in the obese literature, um, higher protein diets result in greater fat loss in an obese person trying to lose weight and the maintenance of muscle mass, the maintenance of metabolic rate. Multiple studies reporting that. Now, very there's not many studies in lean people because nobody, why study lean people losing weight? They don't really need to. <laughs> so that we don't have as much to pull on there. But from the limited research that is available in that area, um, we also have some data to suggest that fat loss is significantly greater with higher protein intakes. Performance is maintained better in athletes who have a higher protein diet. And like, and you also said, there is a, a feeling of fullness when dieting. And I think that's huge. Anything yeah. you can do to help feel full during a diet is, is going to be, you're going to want every avenue of not being hungry as possible. And, and that's one of the best ones that we know of. Not all studies report that. Some studies say that protein is more filling. Some studies say it's the same, it's no better. But no study has ever said that protein makes you hungrier as compared to carbs and fats. At least I haven't found that study yet. Don't we know like uh, rate of gastric emptying that protein takes longer than other macronutrients? Yeah, I believe that's the case. Um, Carbs and fats are are quicker. And then the other thing is with protein, um, one of the likely reasons why it causes greater fat loss is it elevates metabolic rate more. Protein has nitrogen bonds, which is the only macronutrient to have nitrogen. And it's, those bonds are, are tough. So when the body breaks them, it has to spend ener- more energy to break these bonds. And then when you break these bonds, that energy is released as heat, which is your metabolism. So there, there's that aspect. And protein is protein sparing. Your muscles are protein. So that tends to help with keeping protein synthesis levels high. Now, um, I just read recent research within the last week. If the caloric deficit is too severe, even a high protein diet doesn't help. I mean, it's, you're still, your, your mu- muscle protein synthesis still gets suppressed. So there are limits on what protein can do. Yeah. And our current study looking at a near 40% caloric restriction over two weeks, we're going we're gonna to be able to say, yeah, people can tolerate this. Um, and in that study, our macronutrient distribution is at around 50% protein of total calories even more than that in some people, some of our smaller females, the protein, because they're not eating, they might not have been eating a lot of food going into the study. Now we're cutting their calories by a lot. Um, A majority of their calories are coming from protein. So in some people, it's almost like a modified protein fast is is what we're looking at in some of these subjects. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, type of protein, I know that leucine uh, has the tendency to, in the research, uh, increase muscle protein synthesis or just getting branched chain amino acids in general. So where you're getting your protein, is that an important piece as well? Yeah, so I recommend that a majority of your protein come from high quality sources, which is animal sources. So meats, dairy, fish, eggs, those would be your high quality sources. But even if you, if let's say you're vegetarian, as long as you're getting, an, you, you would need more protein from, let's say, vegetable sources. But I, as long as you get enough protein, even though it would be more, I, even, even some of these non-animal sources would, would, would allow you to help receive the benefits of a high-protein diet. But you are getting more calories at that point because you need more protein from these lower-quality sources. Let's say like rice protein, pea protein, potato protein. Um, soy protein is a great protein for if, if, if you don't want to take whey protein or you know, casein or these higher quality sources. Soy protein is a, it's just a little bit, uh, methionine's a little low. And uh, one of the things that I always recommend is instead of doing a, you know, for some of my vegan clients that I've had over the years is instead of doing a rice protein or a pea protein, do try and find one that's combined, rice and pea, because they're yeah. completing that amino acid profile. And um, distributions, because I think this is a big one when you talk about the carnivore diet, the keto diet, the, you know, different high carb, low fat, low, like in terms of calorie deficits and creating calorie deficits, 
Does the distribution matter? I tend not to focus on the distribution. I tend to focus on preferences and let the preferences dictate the distribution with the philosophy that we want you to be consistent. We want you to adhere to whatever diet you're on. So I'll give an example. My wife loves carbohydrates. She'll eat birthday cake. She'll, she likes um, like, like soda sweets, diet soda, pasta. pasta. She's not real big on fats like, um, like bacon. She doesn't like eggs. So for somebody like her, if I said, hey, you need to get um, after protein, I want you to get 50% carbs, 50% fat. She's going to struggle getting that much fat and, and I would say less likely to adhere to her diet. So right. I would say, all right, go 80, 20 carbs to fat or whatever you want. Just make sure that your calories are still in a deficit, you know, hit your calorie goal, hit your protein goal, because that's going to keep your muscle mass, your metabolic rate. But I don't personally, I think that the distribution for whatever benefits they may provide it's of not of a high priority as somebody's preferences that will allow them to be more consistent in following the plan or adhering to the caloric deficit. Well, you can't do anything without uh, compliance, right? If you can't comply long-term and, and we're talking about general population that wants to be fitter and leaner and healthier and feel well, it's, it doesn't matter if they can't comply long-term. Uh, yes. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's the name of the game for sure. <laughs> Um, and we just started a study too. This is interesting. Now we had to shut it down because of COVID, unfortunately. But I believe if you just give somebody who's not dieting, if you just say, hey, let's just increase your protein. So we're going to increase your protein and let's reduce some carbs or fat, whatever. But you're not, we're not reducing your calories at all. We're just replacing protein with carbs or we're going to replace some, some fat with some protein. I think that they're going to have some fat loss and a change in their body composition just from that change alone. So I've yeah. seen this anecdotally. I've seen this in clients. So we finally designed a, a pretty large study. So this, this study is in non-resistance trained females, and it's going to be the largest study we've ever done. Our, our intent is to recruit 90 females, um, and one group will not change anything about their diet. They're just going to start the resistance training program. The other, the other group we're saying, do the same resistance training program, but we want you to just to double a couple times, double your protein intake from some of your normal, normally consumed protein. So if you normally have two eggs for breakfast three times a week, eat four eggs for breakfast. If you normally have a chicken salad, get a double helping of chicken. If you normally have tuna, a can of tuna, have two cans or whatever it is. If you, uh, most of these females aren't taking protein supplements, but if they were, have two scoops instead of one. And then the third group we're saying, not only do we want you to increase your protein, we want you to actually track it and hit a gram per pound. So that's like the more stringent group. But the question is, do you really have, if you're taking somebody who's never tracked before, do we really have to get them to do this big jump of learning how to track, weigh, measure? Or can we do something simple to say, just double your protein from normal high protein foods. Um, do that, you know, a couple times today. Don't track anything and let's just see what happens. That's, that's the question we're going to find out. And maybe you do have to track. That's exciting. I can't wait to hear the results of that. I do that with my clients all the time when we get started just to practice. Just eat protein. Just get protein in. Let's just start there before we start tracking. And then we do a little bit of education as we go through as they're increasing those. I call them the little mini bites extra Instead of yeah. eating the extra carbs, just have a couple extra bites of your protein. And it, it absolutely helps. So I'm, I'm excited to see how that turns out. <laughs> now, so your, experience, your experience, though, in your clients is that there are improvements in body composition just oh, from change? Absolutely. I think par two pieces. One is the hunger control. Um, they're not as hungry for the carbohydrates because they're actually they're just changing the ratio of that macronutrients per meal. And then the second is they have more energy to lift. So their excitement to lift, they're feeling stronger. They're feeling like they can push a little bit harder. So I definitely feel like those two pieces are something that I've experienced with clients. And then long-term, like maybe 8, 10, 12 weeks when we do body fat tracking, they definitely see improvements in a decrease in body fat and an increase in muscle mass. So I'm excited to see what your research is. Yes. Yeah. yeah. We actually started it. We had 26, I think 26 females started and then a week into it, 
-hmm. we had to shut down not um, just because my lab is in a is in a campus recreation facility and they had to shut down so that by default made me shut down so we're hoping to get started again in january well i would i would assume just based on that if you kept calories the same yeah and you change the composition of protein and they're doing a resistance training program two things are going to happen right one you're going to have the thermic effect of the protein that you're breaking down, right? Thermic effect of, of the food that you're eating is going to increase. So you're going to burn more calories per day just by eating more protein. And the second thing that's going to happen is you're going to build more lean mass, which is also going to raise your resting metabolic rate, correct? Yes. Yep. Yep. We, uh, and we are measuring metabolic rate. So in, in theory, two of these groups are not dieting. They're actually increasing their food. Right. The question is, does that, is that going to cause fat gain? Mm-hmm. or not uh, i don't i, I I'm, I'm not going to be surprised if it doesn't allow them to gain any fat mm-hmm. uh, but but we'll see and we have to be really really um careful um dr eric trexler helped us design this study and dr rob wildman from uh, he works for uh dimatize um and dimatize has donated a lot of protein for the for the protein tracking group for this study but we had to make sure that the control group didn't do any tracking. So we normally we have people do a lot of tracking, but we said, no, we can't really bias them at all to know what they're doing. We don't want them to change anything. So they don't track anything until the end of the study, like the last week of the study, so that they literally, hopefully they don't even know what a carb is if they didn't know what it was before the study started. <laughs> and then the group that's not, not tracking, we just want them to double their protein intake. So we just have them writing down or identifying their protein sources and then telling us, yes, they doubled it or no, they didn't. Because we, we really want, we don't, don't want them, we don't want this to be a tracking study in those two groups. So the only group that never does any tracking is that final group, that third high protein group. And then the last thing I wanted to cover, and the reason why I wanted to cover this is because I saw an Instagram post for you from you, I believe you posted it yesterday about meal frequency and what we used to think versus what we know now. Yeah. Um, the mm-hmm. old, and you know, it was funny because I, that resonated with me because I'm, I'm reading you writing in the post about like, you know, I thought this too, like you got to eat six meals a day. And when I was bodybuilding, I was like six to seven meals a day. That's the ideal way. And you're saying that today we know otherwise, which I know from a client standpoint, but you know from more of a research standpoint. So where are we at in terms of meal frequency? Yeah, so just to, to, to reiterate, we were all taught eat six times per day. It keeps your metabolic rate high, keeps your fat loss, it keeps you from gaining weight. And just two personal experiences with that, living that lifestyle. Um, one is it's really hard to eat six times per day. It's like all day you're planning on your next meal. And for me personally, I'm hungry all day long. I'm eating all these smaller meals and all it does is just make me hungry all day. So I've learned personally, I'd much rather have two huge meals than six or eight smaller ones. That tends to be different in some people. Some people like feel more full if they can eat more often. Other people feel more full if they eat larger meals. And in that post, I kind of said, well, where did this come from? Why, why did we think this? And it came from observational studies where they just observed a bunch of people and they said, how many times do you eat per day? And there were people who said two times, and I'm, I'm simplifying this. There were people who said two times and there were people who said six times. Well, when they took that data and they said, okay, everybody who eats two times, wow, they're all overweight. Everybody who says they eat six times, none of them are overweight. So clearly eating six times causes you to be lean and clearly eating less than six times or two times causes overweight. So that's what um, a, a concept you, I didn't, I didn't use this in my post because it's for Instagram and it gets a little complicated, but that's reverse causality is a mistake that they made there. It may just as easily be that these people were overweight and because of that, that's why they're only eating twice per day. And the people who were not overweight, that's why they eat six times per day. So two other thoughts here. One, who's more likely to skip meals? Somebody who's overweight or underweight? Well, it's overweight. So that might not be how they normally did it, but now they know they're in a study being watched. So they're not going to be, they're not going to be honest or they're going to skip meals um, for this research. And we also know that everybody, but more so obese and overweight individuals, they underreport their food intake. So there's probably where the, the misinterpretation came. 
Now I'm aware of about four to five actual intervention studies, some of them where they had people in metabolic wards and they actually measured their metabolic rates, their, their ability to burn fat, or they measured them over six, eight, 12, 14 weeks from a high meal frequency or low meal frequency. And in every one of these, let's just say it's five studies, in all five studies where they measured body composition or metabolic rate, there was no advantage to eating more times per day than fewer times per day. Um, and in some cases, it was actually worse to, to eat more times per day. Um, one of the studies had, had a, um, a little bit less of a um, fat burning effect. Now, the obvious caveat to this is what if you're an active person who resistance trains, which is my population, and protein intake? I personally think that it makes sense. Now, I can't point to research or I can't point to good research to say you need to eat protein four times per day. But I think that's probably about right. Four large doses of protein per day. So whatever, you're, whatever you weigh in pounds, divide it by four. Try to get that four times per day. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, post-workout would be the easiest way to, to hit that. Um, but is five better than four? Is four better than three? I don't, know. I don't think we can say that from the literature, but it's where I fall just from a practicality standpoint and based on some limited, not great research. So you're saying in terms of uh, maintaining lean mass or building lean mass, theoretically, right, without research, you know, or, or hard data, we would say, hey, probably at least four times a day to consume protein. Yeah, I, I, yeah I, I mean, I would say three to five, but four is about the sweet spot. And, and what we know, there is some research to suggest, well, let's just say somebody says, well, I'm going to eat eight times per day, because um, what can that hurt? Well, there is this concept known as the refractory response or muscle full response um, to protein intake. And based on this data, if you have protein all day long, your muscle protein synthesis goes up, up, and it even if you continue to eat protein every, let's say, hour, muscle protein synthesis will still come back down. So there is a threshold. There's, yes, yep, there's a threshold. It's called the refractory response. So what this theory is, you have to eat protein and it, it will spike muscle protein synthesis. Then it actually has to come back down to baseline before it will go back up again. So if you can, in the study that I'm referring to, they actually infused like through intravenously um, amino acids, like an essential amino acid solution. And they, they showed postal protein synthesis was up. It went back down to baseline, despite the fact that protein was still being fed into the body intravenously. Mm -hmm. So there is, you can't assume that I'm going to eat protein all day because that study alerted us to say, no, you're not, that doesn't elevate, you know, logically I would think, yeah, that makes sense. But it didn't. And if it did work, I think we would see people eating protein 10, 12 times per day for added nope. benefit, but it, it's not what's, it's it just, there, there is a threshold. It's, it's interesting you say that because I remember a while back, like, uh, you know, Jay Cutler eating 10 meals a day and, you know, waking up in the middle of the night to get in a, a whole chicken, right? Like him and Ronnie <laughs> Coleman, they, they were of that school of thought. Uh, but I also think there's a difference, you know, when the average, going back to consumers of content, when they're looking at that stuff, they're not realizing that there is some enhancement in those guys and we would have to actually study and look at the difference between enhanced athletes versus non-enhanced athletes and see what the difference is in terms of protein synthesis there because we know that anabolic compounds will increase muscle protein synthesis. Yeah, I, I agree. I treat, I treat them as two different populations. It might as well be chickens and humans <laughs> you know, when I look at enhanced versus non-enhanced. Mm -hmm. Cool stuff, man. Really great research, really great insight. Uh, I love what you're doing. I'm excited to see that that study that you have uh, upcoming. When do you have like a timeline on that? Um, the rapid fat loss yeah. or the diet break? The Nicole, which one was that? The which, wait, the one he's bringing back in January. That the one you're bringing, yeah, the COVID. one that you stopped. Okay, so that that's our that's our actually that's, that's, a, that's our protein tracking yeah. study. That will probably not get done until the end of 2021, mm -hmm. considering how many subjects we need to do in that one. Um, our rapid fat loss study, we'll finish that at the, in the, at the end of October in terms of the data collection. 
-hmm. then we'll analyze that data and submit that for publication. But that's really going to be cool because um, we're going to be able to see how can, can we go on a rapid cut for two weeks? Again, it's only two weeks and still maintain muscle mass and, mm -hmm. and not do any damage to our metabolic rate. If we can, okay. Now it goes against my philosophy, but where I would put this in is this is only intended for a two week period of time. You're not supposed to stay in this 40% deficit for an extended period of time. So can we go in with a lot of energy and a pretty aggressive and then come out of it without doing any damage? That's yeah. the real question. Come out untouched. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So we're going to see. Interesting. I think it's great stuff. I mean, listen, when I was in, in college studying nutrition and dietetics, I felt like it was both ends of the pendulum, right? And at the time, when as I graduated in 2013, I felt like I was only either reading obesity research or only really reading sports-specific research. And you're kind of in that middle ground, which I love, because yeah. that is what speaks to most people. That's what most, the majority of the population needs. So I, I really think it's excellent research and the population that you're focusing on is awesome. And yeah, it's, it's great. Yeah. Thank you. I, I, I like the end. I like the positive energy. I love it. I love it. I love, you know, reading good research that applies to my clients because that's my client. I was just going to say they're, they're, for us as trainers. You know, yeah. We're not dealing with clinically obese mm -hmm. people. We're not dealing with performance athletes. We're dealing with the population where it's like, all right, cool. We need Bill Campbell to produce this research. So we know what to do and how to move forward. Yeah. Yep. No, I, I appreciate that. And to be fair, I mean, my research, um, one thing I do, if you look at some of my studies, I, I give the individual responses. So even though I report, Hey, on average, they lost, you know, eight pounds of fat. There's some subjects who only lost a pound of fat. There's some subjects who lost 12 pounds of fat, um, as it, just general examples here. So that's also important to realize, um, also appreciate that, and I know you guys do because you work with, with actual clients, but some people are going to respond better. Some people are not. Yeah, that's huge. And thank you for saying that because even our clientele that may be listening to this, they not comparing themselves to each other or to what someone else may be experiencing is important as well. Yes, absolutely. All right. All good stuff. Ladies and gentlemen, if you enjoyed this episode, click subscribe, comment, and give us five stars and you'll hear us next week. 